it's okay for him. But ah, it says it's working, so we're just going to trust it. Go ahead. Hey, Grace. Uh, man with arms raised. Look. Reveal. Breath. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards the statutes and do not and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant, so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Okay, let's see here. That's one and two. Okay, now we have today is February 4th. We'll read this. I think we've read these ones before. I think we must have met on February 4th last year or two years ago, but that's okay. Can we help you, ma'am? Hey, come up here for a second. Before we get started, we're just getting started, so we got to get this done right now. It does yours say the same thing, mine? It does. Come up here. Look at her smiling. She's laughing. She's got to quit wearing yeah. Now, somebody sent us some, and he said, uh, if you uh, one of them fits you, then give the other one away. And I thought, well, I want to look like my wife. So we got matching shirts. They say, uh, first a Christian, and then an American, with big I can. And then it says, not American. So you have to be like the Seabees with a can-do attitude. And then on the back, turn around, it says... Shirt model here. Read that, because I can't read it from here. Do Christians bother you? Don't worry. We'll be out of your way soon enough. Hey, I like that. Praise Jesus. Okay, that was from Jeff out in Hawaii, guy that uh, I've known for quite some time. Yes, I'm all done with my wife now. Okay, here we go. February... Thank you, Jeff. Um, February 4th, she wrote a hymn that became her prayer. Francis Ridley Havergal was born in 1836 to a Christian family in England. She was a very bright child who read well at age three and was writing poetry at age seven. She memorized long passages of scripture, learned several languages, and became an excellent pianist. Her father called her Little Quicksilver. Her mother became terminally ill when Francis was only 11. On her deathbed, she told her devastated, sensitive daughter, Fanny dear, pray to God to prepare you for all he is preparing for you. Fanny took her mother's words to heart and made this her lifelong prayer. From her teen years, she loved to write and sing, desiring to use her gifts to win others to her Savior. She once described her writing process. Writing poetry is easy for me. Most of the time, I just put down in a verse personal experience. Writing hymns is like praying, for I never seem to write even a verse by myself. I feel like a child writing. You know a child will look up at every sentence and ask, what shall I say next? This is what I do. Every line and word rhymes, rhyme comes from God. On February 4th, 1874, Francis Ridley Havergal wrote the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Francis was spending five days visiting in the home of some friends that included several unbelievers and lukewarm believers. She felt burdened for them and prayed, Lord, give me all in this house. By the end of the visit, her prayer was answered and her friends were rejoicing together in the joy of knowing Christ personally. Fanny wrote to her sister of the event, the last night of my visit, I was too happy to sleep and passed most of the night in praise and renewal of my consecration. And these little couplets formed themselves and chimed in my heart one after another till they finished with ever only all for thee. 
And the words are, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine alone, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Frances considered, take my life and let it be to be an expression of her own commitment to Christ. She frequently reviewed the words prayerfully in order to consecrate herself new to Jesus she died four years after writing the hymn at aged 42, leaving a legacy of many hymns such as Like a River Glorious, Lord, speak to me that I may speak. I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, and who is on the Lord's side. And they ask, is it your prayer that God would take your life and let it be consecrated to him? Use this hymn as a sincere prayer that God would work in your life today. And then from Romans 6.13, give yourselves completely to God since you have been given new life and use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. Sounds like Galatians 5, doesn't it? Um, let's see here. We'll put that out of the way. And then we have a couple prayer requests. Uh, let's see here. Lothar. Oh, boy. He uh, went to the doctor, and the doctor says, I can't find any further uh, metast metastases. None. So uh, he's not sure what that means at this point. So what's that? I understand, but I mean... Does Is that the mean, still there? I well, I don't know that, but that's what he said, and I, I don't know if it means it's actually waning or if it's just, it's but he was very happy in the email. Yes, it's not spreading. So we're going to praise the Lord for that tonight. And then uh, Brandon Graydon, his wife Natsumi, is having their first baby, but the head is still up, whatever that means. I'm, doctors know that kind of stuff. They're going to try to fix it Thursday. Well, that's today, and I don't know how that went out, but we'll pray that things have come out okay they always come out head first. well i understand but i don't know what that means as far as turning it because she's still in the womb yeah so i anyway um and then becky has got serious internal pain she emailed today and uh so uh she's asked for prayer about that and i know also her husband and her had some uh sinus conditions that have been ongoing for like a year now so uh uh, and then one other is my oldest brother, which I'm not allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, he got a detached retina, and he's going blind in one eye, and they apparently have pulled him off of his job as a driver for FedEx. So uh, he's, I, he, I haven't talked to him. This is something my dad told me, but uh, uh, would be graciously uh, asked that people pray for that as well. Sure. So we'll go ahead and go to the Lord right now. Heavenly Father. We thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to praise you for uh, the good news about Lothar. And uh, we'll pray that uh, that will continue to get better and better and that he'll be back doing handsprings and uh, just happy in your presence. He already is. He's a very happy person, even in his times of plight. We pray for the others as well, the little baby that's coming, that that'll be righted. And uh, uh, anything else that uh, we mentioned just a moment ago, you know what they are. And anybody else that's got pains or trials or troubles or hurting, or financial difficulties, whatever may be out there that's keeping people from a, a close and personal walk with you, we would pray these things right now. And uh, Lord, to your, we pray them to your honor and to your glory. And we certainly also ask that this class would be conducted in a manner which is proper 
And if there's anything that is not trained uh, to these wonderful people that is appropriate, that you would bring it to their minds so that they would not have a false sense of what your word is saying because of my error. We would pray this as well to your glory. And we certainly pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. We got, uh, you might as well start wherever you want, but we're in Galatians 5.24 today. Top of paragraph 22. All right. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Okay, almost identical, except once again, they say flesh here instead of sinful nature. But they mean the same thing. One is a paraphrase of the other, but they have exactly the same meaning. And uh, make sure when you read, read lab, because uh, Sergio did increase the volume on this. And before I got home, somebody had emailed and said it didn't make any difference. So uh, you want to, if you, if you say anything in the class, say it really loud and hopefully they'll hear. And I always try to repeat what you say anyway. But let's see here. Um, 524, my comments from my old commentary. Uh, let's see here. Here we have a truth, which is sometimes hard for us to understand as we continue to walk in this fallen world. Paul had just given a list of the works of the flesh, and it took us a while to get through those, but a good list of uh, things that uh, we can try our best to stay away from. And then a list of the fruits of the Spirit. He now states that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, obviously, that is in a... Uh, uh, hopeful state at many points in our life, but um, there's something to be said about being saved, and then are we actually in heaven yet, meaning the results of our salvation. We have crucified these things in ourselves, but it may not be actually realized in us yet. So, uh, as always, when you're looking at things like this, you want to think of what is potential and what is actual, and what is um, what is done in God's economy, and what is uh, ahead in God's economy, or in our lives, I should say. And so that uh, sometimes things are working in one way. The truth exists in us. Like Paul says, we are seated in the heavenly places. This is a good one because you'll understand what I'm trying to say to you. Paul says we are seated, Ephesians 2, 7, I think, in the heavenly places. Is anybody here in heaven right now? Obviously not. So in God's mind, we are seated there. But that doesn't mean that we're actually seated there. You got something? Last week. He talked about fruit. fruit. Oh, yeah, it is fruit. It's singular. Yeah. Fruit. I'm glad you brought that up because somebody uh, uh, sent that sent me an email about that to remind me, and I went and uh, uh, did It is. It's fruit singular. Okay, so when you say fruits of the Spirit like I do, then you're incorrect. Okay, um, absolutely. So it, in the Greek, it is fruit. But as Jody noted, even before leaving, uh, the idea of fruit does bear a sense of um, what do you call it, uh, plurality. It's right. just like the word echad in Hebrew. Echad, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad. Now, if he had said Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Yahid, that word, that would mean one and only one. But this word echad can mean a singular within, or plurality within a singular. In other words, you've got a cluster of grapes. So within the cluster, you've got lots of grapes. Or you've got the people of Israel are one. Well, how many people are there in Israel? There are millions of them, right? So echad allows a plurality within a singularity, whereas yachid does not. And uh, so same thing with fruit. You can speak of the fruit of the Spirit, and you can have all kinds of fruit. So in our English, we might say fruits, 
It's just not technically correct to the Greek. So, and that's a good analysis of it. But yeah, absolutely. The Greek is fruit, and it should be translated as fruit. The what? Oh yeah, thank you. I'm I'm wondering why it didn't feel as comfortable today. Um, you had something. The law. Oh yeah, there's one law, but there's lots of laws. You got all kinds of statutes and, and just all kinds of things in there. But if you break one precept in the law, you've broken the law. It's broken. That's exactly right. So that's a, that's a good one right there. You got one law, but there are many laws. You got statutes and judgments and uh, precepts and all these things within the law. Break one, the law is broken. Um, let's see here. Um, let's see. Uh, he now states that those who have, are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is given to show the difference between the carnal man and the regenerate man. He explains this in great detail in Romans 6, in part. Uh, his words from Romans 6, 1 through 7 state. Let me get there really quickly. And, whoops. We'll read that. Oh, I went too far. See? That's what happens when you go too far. I'm sorry, I should have had this all figured out before we started, but I didn't. So 6, 1 through 7, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in that grace, in sin, that grace may abound? Paul says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Okay, now when he says... Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Does that mean that any of us doesn't sin from day to day? Okay, absolutely not. And our old man creeps up all the time. But he's saying that it's been crucified with Christ. So how can that be? It means that in God's reckoning, as I was saying with us seated in the heavenly places, we are reckoned as such. We can no longer have sins imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.19. We do sin, but it is not imputed to us. Because if it was, we would lose our salvation and we'd be right back where we were when we started. So you have to look at things from how God is looking at us and how things actually are within us to fully understand our position at times. And when you do, you can, because people will use those verses and they'll say, well, then you should be living sinless. And if you're not, then you're not a saved person. And this is a person that's obviously thinking way too highly of himself because I guarantee you he goes home and sins every single day of his life. But for him to say that means that I'm better than you, basically. That's what it comes down to is a, an attitude of the heart, not understanding his position in Christ. So we want to be careful to evaluate this properly. And when it says that we have done certain things like been seated in the heavenly places, we look around and we know it's not correct. What is Paul trying to tell us? Um, Paul is saying that through Christ, we are dead to the law. Exactly. As the law is what brings about the knowledge of sin, and as we have overcome the law through Christ's fulfillment of it, then we have been freed from sin. That doesn't mean that we don't sin, but we have been freed from sin, from the effects of sin and from the power of sin. The effects meaning that we can never die again, and that's not talking about physical death. It's talking about the reconnection to God that was made. It was the one that was lost when... <coughs> Once again, just to understand this, we'll go back to the beginning and we'll 
when God said to Adam, the very first thing that he ever said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, of all of the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's correct. Okay, so he told him that. And then it's recorded. We know that Adam sinned. He, he did what he wasn't supposed to do. We know that happened. And at that time, he hadn't had any children. And yet it goes on in Genesis chapter 5 to say that Adam died at what age? 930. That's correct. Okay, so 930 years old. Okay, and it says he had many sons, or he had other sons and daughters. He listed Seth, but it says other sons and daughters. So we know that he had a whole slew of children. Okay, so did God did God lie when he told Adam that he would die on the day that he ate of the fruit? The answer is no, he didn't, because he did die on that day. He died spiritually, and that is the point of the entire basis of redemption from that point on all the way through scripture is that we must be regenerated we must be reborn of the spirit he lost that spirit he lost that connection to god and every single thing that's being done in redemptive in the redemptive narrative is to bring us back to a point where as john says and jesus says in john chapter 3 you must be born of the spirit and he goes through this long talk with with nicodemus explaining what that means and it comes about through the work of Jesus Christ. When you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, because there's nothing else that got anybody saved all the way through the Old Testament, it was in anticipation of the coming Messiah. He came, he fulfilled the law, he finished it, and he was crucified in fulfillment of it, and then he died and came out of the grave. And when we believe in that simple gospel message, we are saved. And we are regenerated, and at that time we can never be, we can never die again. I don't, I have no idea who that is, and I'm not going to answer it. I, no idea. It was an 808 number. Who who knows me with an 808 number? Anyway, um, uh, so uh, uh, now I've completely lost my train of thought. But it was the not speaking. Gospel. Yes, the simple gospel. It was not speaking of the. Uh, uh, physical death of man. It was speaking of the spiritual death. So when I say here, read it again. As the law is what brings about the knowledge of sin, Adam was given a law, he had the knowledge of sin, and he violated the law, and therefore sin entered the world. That's Book of Romans. Paul introduces that thought there. When Adam sinned, sin came into the world. All people have inherited Adam's sin. All people. There is no exception, including Mary. All people have been born spiritually dead. Every person ever born has been disconnected from God. There is no person that was born connected to God. David speaks about that. Um, somebody emailed me a question today about a, a particular issue, and I said, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let you do your own research, and you come to your conclusion. But I will take you really quickly to Genesis chapter 4. And it's this is the Genesis narrative. He's told not to do a certain thing in Genesis 2. Genesis 3, they do that thing. They die spiritually. They're disconnected from God. Adam believes a promise of God, and at that time, Adam is covered. The Lord did something. I'll read it to you first. It says right down here at the bottom, it says, um, And Adam called his wife, wife's name Eve, Hava, because she was the mother of all living. Hava means living or life, okay? So when he did that, that one thing there, God imputed it to him for righteousness. It is a picture of the gospel. And the reason why is because just a couple verses before, it said, uh, the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. 
he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He introduced right there in the Proto-Evangelium proto the gospel. Someone is going to come to destroy the work of the serpent. And Adam heard that and he believed God. And how did he prove that belief? By simply saying, naming his wife Eve. He believed the promise. Naming her Eve was an act of faith. I believe that this is going to happen. Okay. And in that act, it says then that the Lord God, um, and Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. It's a picture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Something had to die in order to provide a covering. Blood was shed. It was not done by the man. It was done by the Lord, and the Lord covered them. It's a picture of the gospel. You are being covered in the righteousness of Christ. Okay, The innocent animal died in place of Adam. That's what the sacrificial system is. All the Levitical system, all of that points to the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so you have this premise that he knew that he had died. It's right there. He knew that he was spiritually dead, and yet God gave him a foreshadowing of the righteousness of Christ and the rebirth. Okay, the next thing that happens right in the Genesis narrative. Here it is. I'm going to read you, and I'm going to ask you a question when we get to verses 3 and 4. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. You all know I've gone through that in a couple Christmas sermons, a ton of theology in that statement. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. We know that. Very depressing name, very depressing situation for Eve. So you know that. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Here it is. This is the first thing that's recorded of them after stating what they do. It says in verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And then it goes on. It says, the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. But the point is that Abel and Cain, actually does it say Cain and Abel? Or it says, yeah, Cain first. Cain and Abel brought an offering. That's the very first thing recorded about them in Scripture. Why is that recorded in Scripture? Out of all the things that could have happened in their lives, tons and tons and thousands of things that could have been said, it says that. Why? Well, it's first the flesh and then the spirit. Well, but what, why, why does it say that they brought an offering before the Lord? Because trying to rebuild the bridge back to God. That's exactly right. It implies original sin. It implies that they are fallen. Right there. It doesn't say anything else in Scripture. Nothing else is included because God is making a point when he says that. These people had to come to me with an offering. Okay? It implies that they knew that there was a disconnect between them. There is a implicitness of the doctrine of original sin right in that there. And then you get to uh, David's words of Psalm 51, right? 51.5, which I was... Yes. Okay, what does that say? Surely I was sinful from birth. I was conceived in iniquity or vice versa, okay? It, he's telling you right there that you have sin the moment that you're conceived. It's in you, okay? And then you get to uh, Romans where Paul says, I think it's in Romans chapter 5, he says, um, I, I'm pretty sure it's Romans 5. Let me get you there really quickly and we'll read that. And it's all making a point of what he's talking about here in Galatians. Okay, but Romans 5, 7, 3, okay, we're getting there. Romans 5, okay, it says, um, uh, 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 if I can find the name Adam in here, then I'll find it. Yeah, there it is right there. Okay, uh, therefore, just as through one man... Everybody was made righteous. Is that right? No, that's not what it says. It says, through one man, sin entered the world. 
and death through sin, and thus death spread to some people. All men. men. That's exactly what David was talking about. I was conceived in iniquity. I was sinful from my mother's womb. Okay, and once again, I may have misquoted that. Okay, but the point being that every single person on this planet was born dead. And all of that is tied up once again in Abraham and his sign of circumcision, the cutting of the sin nature. It was all, everything pointed to the coming of Christ. Every single thing that you see in these passages, the Levitical system and the offerings for sin, that you've got to bring the baby, you know, unclean for eight days, and then you bring it on the eighth day. And all of these things point to Christ and what he is going to do. He is going to take away this sin nature, okay? And until he takes away the sin nature, there is no fellowship between God and man. Your sins have separated from your, your sins have separated you from your God so that he cannot hear. He cannot hear the prayers of a sinful person and all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and all fall short of the glory of God. He cannot hear our prayers because he is perfect and he is holy. We must have a mediator. And that was the point of the Levitical system, putting a mediator in to do this for us. And then Hebrews tells us that none of that was effective. So why did God do it? To anticipate Christ. So whether it was Adam being covered by the Lord, whether it was Abraham being imputed righteousness because of simple faith, or all of the other things that happened in the Old Testament, those things look forward to the coming of Jesus. And then from there, Jesus came and did his work. And from that point, we look back on Jesus. But the entire problem with man is that there is a disconnect between man and God. And that is that of spiritual death. We were born alive physically, but we were born spiritually dead. If we don't get the spiritual death fixed before the physical death comes, we will be forever separated from God. That is the point of the Bible. We need to get the gospel out right now because we don't know what our last day is going to be. Like that lady, she was 40 some years old and she died, okay? I don't know. I didn't never see it. I was probably overseas when it came out, but there was some uh, show back in the 80s, uh, you know, uh, one of these, what do you call them, sitcoms or whatever, like Happy Days, probably in the 80s or 90s because I was overseas. But they made this big thing about it on the news the past couple of days that this guy is 40-something years old and he died, all right? I've never even heard of him. But the point is he died at 40-some years old and he didn't even know he was dying until he went in and they found out he's got lung cancer and he was gone, I mean, that quickly. So there you go. You don't know what your last day is, and we've got to get that corrected in us, that spiritual death before our physical death comes, or we will be separated from God. And if, if that doesn't move people to want to tell the gospel to other people, there's a problem in that heart, and it's something that comes into all of us, but we should want to get that message out, and we should want to get it out quickly to everybody we possibly can. Um, okay, so uh, Romans 6, 1 through 7, Paul is saying that through Christ, we are dead to the law. Okay, that's the point that I was making. We're dead to the law. Adam had the law, he violated the law, and he died. Because Christ died in fulfillment of the law, and we are in Christ, we are no longer under law. Because if we were under law, then anytime we violated the law, we would die. We would be separated spiritually from God once again, and it would be a never-ending cycle of calling on Jesus and being saved, and then sinning and losing our salvation, and then calling on Jesus and being saved, and then sinning and losing our salvation, and we'd never know if we're going to die having sinned before we were able to get it right before God or not. And that is not the way the Bible works. It is a one-time imputation of righteousness by God 
because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And once that happens, we are no longer under law. Law can know, and this is what Paul is trying to tell us here in the book of Galatians, is why are you Galatians trying to put yourself back under something that condemned you? That's the whole point of what he's saying. Why would you do that? Why would you go back under the law of Moses and bring this burden back on yourselves? Because the only thing it leads to is death. That's right. They were never under the law, but that's exactly right. One way or another, though, they are bringing something upon themselves that can only bring death, not life, okay? Paul is saying that through Christ we are dead to the law, as the law is what brings about the knowledge of sin, and as we have overcome the law through Christ's fulfillment of it, it's an imputed righteousness, as uh, David said in the Old Testament, Paul quoted in the New Testament in the book of Romans, he said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. How can that happen? How can David say that when he's a man under the law? It's because David understood that righteousness was not of the law, because he himself had violated the law, and yet the Lord did not impute his sin to him. And he knew that there was something beyond the law, and that's why he could write that psalm. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Paul picked up on that and wrote it in the book of Romans, showing that there is an imputed righteousness that cannot be overworked by our sinful deeds. It can never be overdone, because if it could, we'd all be losing our salvation by the time we walked out the door today, okay? Um, we've been freed from sin. If we are free from sin, then we should live in that freedom. We can choose not to. It's not going to affect our salvation, but it will affect our position before the Lord when we stand before him at the Bema Seat of Christ. What are our rewards? What are our losses? That all comes into play when we live in the carnal nature. And Paul very clearly shows that we can live in the carnal nature. Put away those things. He couldn't say that if they were put away completely, but they are, all right, except in us. They're put away completely in God's eyes, but not in us. We are the ones that will face our own judgment. Okay, um, because of this, we have the ability to bear the fruit, no S, the fruit of the Spirit instead of remaining in the works of the flesh. I need to go back there because Bert's going to have me paranoid for the rest of my life. I need to just make some uh, some little annotations there. But I'm glad you did that because it is singular in the Greek. And so we want to make sure that it's correct. So um, I'm going to put a little check and then say times 1,000 because I'm going to have to check all of them. Anyway, um, fruit instead of remaining in the works of the flesh. And then life application. Because Christ has overcome through the fulfillment of the law and because of our position in him, then let us live for Christ. If the passions and desires of the flesh return to our minds, which they do, let us look again to the cross, understanding that we are freed from their grasp. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Verse, Burke? Hebrews 12, 1 or 2. 2. Yeah, you got it. Good job. Okay. Hebrews 12, 2. Uh, and that's from the NIV. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Seven wonderful words. Uh, the New King James Version here says something like fixing our eyes on Jesus. I prefer the uh, NIV translation in that sense because it, uh, uh, it's active and it's, it's uh, seven words. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's what I read first and I always remember that. That's my favorite, yes, it's my uh, favorite particular verse in the Bible because it reminds me of what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. Anyway, after listening, I, I, let's see. Oh, okay. I didn't know I did this. This has been years, so I've forgotten I'd done this. After listening, oh no, somebody, I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. Who did this? 
Oh, Isabella, the lady that I read on Sunday, her poem. After listening today to your last lesson on Galatians 1, I got inspired to write this poem, and so I added it in here. So here we go. It's funny that this happened on the same week that I read that from her. Right. Um, I was crucified with you, even though I felt no pain. You took all the beating on yourself, every lash that came my way. I was crucified with you, yet my hands were not pierced. I didn't wear the crown of thorns, and my wounds did not bleed. I was crucified with you, but only you paid for my sins. I didn't know that your blood flooded the gates of hell for me. You took all of God's great wrath for my sins by your free will. I was spared from all this pain and was freed the moment I believed. Very nice. Oh, boy. All right. Well, send me an email and I'll, I'll get it. Okay. Um, 525, please. I can just say one thing real fast. Doug is on the phone. I asked him, can he hear me? Yeah. And he said he hears fine. Good. That's okay. Good. good. That is good. You want to explain that behind you, maybe? Yeah. Oh, this behind. Oh, Doug. I, I forgot you put that there. This is a, a Doug sent me something. And when he did, he did this on the envelope. He always does this. He's, he's the guy that does the artwork for each sermon. He lives in Ireland and uh, got some of his artwork in the, the place here. And he. Uh, uh, whenever he sends something out in the post, you know, he sends a check to a, a lawyer or whatever. I, I don't, that just came to mind, but we'll say uh, he uh, writes to somebody about complaining at Amazon or something, whatever, whatever, whenever he makes a post to somebody, he always does something on there and he does a little evangelistic message. And so if they keep that envelope, even if they don't agree with the message, which they should, but if they don't, they're going to be millionaires someday because his work is just beautiful. Anyway, uh, this one says, uh, Charlie Garrett, the superior word church bond servant and then it's got i can't see it uh 1 corinthians seven twenty two, and up in the hat it has colossians but it's too small for me to read right now but he he always puts in this minute detail but uh, uh it's funny the, he, he put that on the envelope but it's funny that he was in israel he told me this a couple days ago uh his wife and doe uh doe he and his wife doe called me from ireland and we were talking and he did one of the paintings from exodus back in the Exodus series, and there were four people in the painting. And the third person is this. He had painted this years before he ever met me. And he's got the crooked nose. He's got the, the mustache. I, it looks identical to me. And yet, and sure enough, he was in Israel, and he just got inspired to make a, uh, a, a thing. And it's on one of the Genesis sermons. I'm sorry, Exodus sermons. But that's from there. And I mean, it is identical if you look at it you say well that's charlie it's kind of spooky anyway a uh, god wink it was a god wink there you go okay 525 since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit okay uh this one's a little different but very close if we live in the spirit let us also walk in the spirit in step walk okay um 525 paul's words here show that those who have received christ now live in a different way than they did before receiving him. Before we lived in the flesh, now we live by the Spirit. Hopefully, once again, hopefully, all right? But Paul's words are taking it as a uh, sense of trust that people are going to live by the Spirit. And that's why he's writing this epistle to these people that he loves who have fallen away from following the right path of the Lord. This is exactly why. And the thing is, you know, these epistles are written by Paul and they're written to different churches and they're written for specific reasons. And yet, when you read them, it could be any church at any time throughout church history. 
All of these things are problems that keep creeping up in the human condition all the way through. Okay? Sure. Yes. This first word, his says since, which I like. Okay. Since we are. Mine reads if. If we are. If we, if we are. Okay. If it, you know, that, that to me is... Uh, Questioning That's right. It is. Now, this one says, um, and this one says if as well, if we live in the spirit, yeah. but it may not be a question. Depend, you know, we can use if as a, a, a statement. If we are handsome, then we will act as handsome men, acknowledging that I'm handsome, right? So in that sense, if can be used in a positive way. And I think that's what they're doing here. I don't think he's questioning it. I think he's making a statement. If we live in the spirit, and I was kidding about the handsome part, okay? Um, anyway, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit, okay? He's not questioning it. He's stating it as a statement of fact, even though, but he could be, you know, I, I don't know what the word is right now, and I'd have to pull it out and read it, but since and if tells me that that's what he's doing, because a translator isn't going to go that far off. Um, although they do, I mean, you go to the Hebrew on Sunday, and we've got some that are are making completely different translations out of something that seems pretty fast and clear. And so we read this other places and they use sense. Sometimes they use sense. Oh yeah, that's right. In, in there. Well, once again, it you're going to have a, you're going to have in a Bible, you're going to have uh, especially something you know when you have not just like Robert's Young Robert Young's translation. He sat down and he did that himself over many many years. But if you have a Bible translation by the NAS or you have it by the King James translators. You're going to have committees, and you're going to have a lot of committees. You're going to have, okay, you're going to do Leviticus 1 through Leviticus 15, and you're going to do 16 through 27 or whatever. And then you're, and they may even stop in the middle of a passage, okay? This is too long, and we're going to let you do half of it. Or they may have, you two take Leviticus uh, 1, 1 through 15, and you take the rest of the chapter. And so you're going to get a variation even within, and you'll see this. I know this because, well, I won't get into that now. But um, uh, you can actually see who, where a change in translator is within a translation if you look closely enough. It, it, and so sometimes if they say since, it may just be a completely different translating committee that did that portion. And using the same word with the same basic context, he'll translate it differently here. And that is supposed to be. After they do a translation by all these scholars, because you might have 50 or 60 or 100 or whatever, they'll sit down and they'll ask them to, to do that translation. From there, they get what is called an, begins with E, ends with editor. An editor, okay? Okay, they'll have an editor go through, an editorial team, and they're supposed to catch this kind of stuff. They're supposed to be able to say, we're going to make this a unified translation where everybody sees the same thought progressing through it. And like I said, I, I, I'll tell you how I know this, and I can tell. I have a habit of, if you ever want to see it, it's on the uh, wonderful one. Uh, I'm sorry, I got rid of that website. Uh, and there's a reason why. People panicked when I did that. But um, uh, it's on the Superior Word website, Now I moved it over there. It's errors in the King James Version. And every time I find an error, I list it, and I'm up to like 4,000 or whatever. <laughs> it's a lot. Okay, but the reason why I do that is to refute the the teaching out there which really has got people in bondage anyway having said that as i'm going through there every single verse that i evaluate uh for a sermon you know a sermon might take nine hours and we'll get eight verses out of the way but each verse i will stop and i will check it against the hebrew and the king james version and i will say uh this is wrong but it's not really an error because it's just old english okay and the word has changed 
or this is wrong and here's why. This is an actual error. Okay, all of these things, and I do that. Um, and as I'm going through there, I can see all of a sudden there'll be a change in the translation and there will be no errors. Where in the last paragraph, or I'm sorry, in the last chapter, there will be an error in almost every single verse of that chapter. There will be an actual error. I'm talking about a translational error that makes it not say what it should say. And then you get to the next one, there'll be none. And you, see, you know that a different person is translated. And you can see the way that they've translated the words. It might be a little more formal. It might be a little less formal. That's all supposed to be taken care of by the editor, but it's really not. You can, you can really see where somebody has done a good job of something and where they've been consistent with the use of a word. And all of a sudden, you'll see the word, same word, in the exact same context, changed again. You'll say, oh, now we're into another translator. And they'll go back to, or maybe it's the same translators that did this part of this. And they're, they're once again, incorrectly translating this part of the thing. So it's a great thing. I like doing it because I learn. I've always said, you know, when people make mistakes, you learn more from your mistakes than you do from the things you do right normally. Uh, as I said that in a sermon about uh, uh, Thomas Edison recently, I didn't make 4,000 faulty light bulbs. I found 4,000 ways to make to not make a right light bulb. In other words, he had to keep doing this until he got to the right one. Well, so when you find somebody that's making errors, if you know why that error was made, you can now avoid that type of error. So we'll go on. Anyway, I don't know what got me on that, but it was something you said, Burke. Oh yeah, if and since, there you go. It could be something as simple as that, a different translating committee, and they just have a different way of approaching it. And the editor normally is not going to go back and check the Hebrew and Greek. It's going to take way too long, and that was supposed to be their job. Their job is to make it sound consistent and to flow properly all the way through, etc. But they're not going to catch those type of things because he doesn't know if that word means two things or if it was two different words. He's not going to check that. Anyway, something? My, my wife worked for a department store in Ashland, Kentucky. Okay. In the bookkeeping, and she made mistakes and her supervisor said, Shirley, you're going to be able to help everybody that comes in here because you have done you know, <laughs> what was wrong and learned what is right. <laughs> she did what was wrong, so they learned how to do what's right. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, that, and that's right. That's how you learn to do things. If everything is right, you're not going to know how to identify when something's wrong. So I actually cherish that part. But I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of extra time on Monday. Since I started doing that, I don't know, two or three books of the Bible ago on the Hebrew and in the, the Greek, maybe, you know, further back. But uh, Jim came to me one day and he said, well, is the Rome, book of Romans really that good? Is it that well translated? And I said, no, I just wasn't checking that. When I was doing the Romans commentary, I wasn't checking for errors in the King James Version. And so, you know, it looks like there's none, but it's just I wasn't checking it. But if you go through, you know, Deuteronomy, there's some chapters, like I say, where you'll see error and sometimes three and four errors in a single verse. And these are real errors that will cause somebody to have a different perception of what is being said. You know, and I only do it with that one because that's the only version that people do with. And I'm not going to do it with like the, the uh, something that's not really a translation, like the New World Translation by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Why would you even bother? But anyway, I really have learned to cherish doing this because it helps me learn what I don't know because I'm not a translator and I certainly don't know Hebrew and Greek that well. And so everything that I do, I have to learn as I'm doing it. And it's a big help to me, so I, I will keep doing it. But it adds a lot to Mondays, which are already really tough days. Anyway, um, 
where were we? I live by the, I'll just start here. Before we live in the flesh, now we live by the Spirit. The word by seems to be a better translation of the Greek as it more properly shows the divide between the old life and the new. Let me read that again. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It must be walk by the Spirit, okay? And so this is, I think, Young's literal translation. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It is an indication that we can, in fact, be saved and yet not live according to the manner in which we were called. Once again, I think that was probably Young's literal translation, but I didn't give him the credit for it, so um, we'd have to go back and check that. But it, it does seem like it's a much better sense of what's going on. Instead of acting as if we are dead to sin because we have moved to Christ who fulfilled the law for us, we continue to live in sin. Paul now shows us that this is not the proper way to conduct ourselves. Interestingly, he uses a completely different word for walk than that which he used in verse 516. 516 said, uh, where is it? Uh, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then down here, we're in verse 25. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. So that is an inconsistency in translation because they're translating two words as walk when they should maybe say something different, okay? Once again, it may not be an error, but it's an inconsistency, okay? Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, there, there, the word was used in an ethical sense. It was intended to show the conduct of our life. In this verse, he uses a word which means to walk in a line as if in a strict accordance to a particular pace. If we think of keeping in step, keeping in step, or walking in cadence, we get the idea of what Paul means. He uses the same word in a graphic way in Romans 4.12 concerning our following in the steps of Abraham. Paul is asking us to walk in cadence with the leading of the Spirit and not be diverted from that sound and reasonable path. So once again, we could say, let us not walk in the flesh. And then down here, we could say, let us, uh, how did he say it? Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also um, march, you know, uh, in the spirit. In other words, find a word that will match the intent of the word instead of just saying walk because now people kind of have a, a faulty sense of what's being said up there and what's being said down here. Here, we're supposed to actively walk in cadence with the spirit. I can't think of a word right off the top of my head, but if we could find one like that, it would help people to understand there's a different word being used and it has a different meaning and we're supposed to assimilate that into our head. And that's why we have Bible class, of course, is if we go through these words and we look at them and we find out why a certain word is used, even if we use the same word in the English, we can at least sit down and explain it. So now we know. Let us kind of walk in cadence in the spirit. Life application. If one is in a military unit, he's expected to march according to the steps of that unit. I can tell you that if you don't learn left, right, left, right, left, right, after about 30 seconds in the U.S. Air Force, I don't know how long, maybe 10 seconds in the uh, Marines and Army, but if you don't learn it, you're, you're going to have a lot of difficulty with your, you know, uh, DI, or we call them a TI, and I didn't want to confuse anybody. The Air Force always does something differently. But, yeah, we call it a technical instructor, whereas there it's a drill instructor. But um, uh, you uh, always, when you are marching, you always, when they say, you know, on your, uh, how does it go forward? March, okay. When you do that, you always start with your left foot. 
So everybody starts together. If somebody starts with the right, they're going to be off and they're going to be doing what's called the double step in order to try to catch up. And then when you double step with the guy in front of you, you're bound to kick his foot. And when you do, then he gets out of step. So the whole thing is that we want to keep in step and we don't want to be out of step at any time. Okay. If one is in a military unit, he is expected to march according to the steps of that unit. It would be contrary to the discipline of the formation for everyone to walk to the beat of their own desires. Such is the case with walking in step with the Spirit. It is contrary to walk according to the works of the flesh when we have been called to walk in step with the Spirit. And so let us do that. Let us walk in cadence with the Spirit. Okay, 526. Let us not become conceited, provoking, envying each other. Okay, let us not become conceited, provoking, provoking one another, envying one another. So he... He, envying one another, he says? Envying, yeah. yeah he said, but he, he says one another twice instead of just combining the two. Says the exact same thing, but once again, just noting the difference. Paul's admonition here is correctly translated by the New King James Version in using the word become. Let us not become. What did yours say? Let us not become. Okay, good. He is not saying that they are any of these things, but they are to be careful to not become any of these things. The reason must be attributed to the false teachings of the Judaizers. They crept in and had taught their destructive heresy, and yes, it's heresy what they were teaching, and Paul makes that absolutely clear on page 1, verses 6 through 8 of Galatians, okay? He says, if anyone teaches any other doctrine than that which you have heard, let him be anathema, and he repeats himself, and then he goes on and he says, if we or an angel from heaven or anybody, you know, he's adamant about this, and what they are teaching is heresy, and it is exactly, and I bring it up every week because I can't say it enough. I have people email me and say I was stuck in that, and I'm so glad to listen to your studies. The Hebrew Roots Movement is exactly, it is exactly what Paul is speaking about right here. There's no difference between what the Judaizers of Paul's time and the Hebrew Roots Movement people of today are doing. There's no difference. Zero. It is the same twisted doctrine, okay? And so you can't say it enough. It must be said again and again because people need to understand how destructive this is. All right, um, they were to be careful not to become any of these things. It must be attributed to the false teachings of the Judaizers, Hebrew Roots Movement. They crept in and had taught their destructive heresy concerning inserting deeds of the law in order to be justified. Once again, Jim, you answer this. What is the difference between heresy and bad doctrine? Bad doctrine will not cause anyone not to be saved. Right. Heresy will cause the next person not to be saved. That's exactly right. He, the next person, because a heretic can actually be a saved person. But what he is teaching, like these Judaizers may have actually been saved by Jesus, but they could never get away from the law of Moses. And so they are out there telling people, you need to be circumcised like we are. They've already been saved, and yet they're teaching something that will keep the next person from being saved. And so a heresy will prohibit salvation in the next person, whereas bad doctrine won't you know, uh, mid-trip rapture, okay? That's poor doctrine, but it's not going to keep anybody from being saved, okay? And then mid-trippers are saying, well, the pre-trip is bad doctrine, but, okay, they're just wrong, okay? Anyway, we have, we have a hope that we are going to be out of here before the tribulation be period. They'll surprised when they go up. Yes, they will be. They'll be more surprised. When, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to beat them because I'm going to jump as soon as I hear the, the <laughs> trumpet. I'm going to beat everybody by at least however high I can jump, okay? Um, yes, they crept in and had taught their destructive heresy concerning inserting deeds of the law in order to be justified. In doing so, it would naturally lead to each 
of these things that he's talking about, just as it did among the Jews, where there was always a subtle competition as to who was the most pious because of their deeds of the flesh. Paul's, you know, what's his name? Um, Coral Ridge Ministry, Jim, uh, James, uh, James, uh, come Kennedy. on. Kennedy, James D. Kennedy, thank you. Uh, I used to watch him at one time, he, uh, before he died, he uh, talked about a writing of a Jewish person. Um, I don't remember what his name was, but this is a person that was stuck in legalism in his own self-righteousness. And he said, in his own writings, I mean, they, they've got this history, has it borne out in his, this guy's own writing. What an embarrassing thing. Um, I suppose that uh, uh, out of the whole world, there are none more righteous than myself and my sons. And he says, but if I must compare, compare the three, my sons do not compare to me. I think that's the way he said it. And I thought, can you imagine that some, just some Jewish guy that he was, you know, probably, I don't remember when, it might've been at the time of Jesus, you know, like the writings of Gamaliel or one of these people, or maybe it was later during uh, the time of the writing of the Talmud or something. But he is, he is saying that in the whole world, he is the most righteous person. And that's, this is the attitude that happens when you start reinserting the law into your church which is what the Hebrew Roots Movement or the Seventh-day Adventists or any, any church that is going to say, I hate to say it, here we go, because I'm going to talk about it again on Sunday, tithing. Tithing is an Old Testament precept. It is a part of the Law of Moses, and it is not a part of the New Testament or the New Covenant in any way, shape, or form, okay? But if you insert tithing into your church theology, what is going to happen within the church? Discord. You're going to have discord. You're going to have, I give 10%. Well, I can't afford to. Well, then you're not as good as me. I don't care what precept you introduce into a church, how noble it sounds. If you insert that precept, which is not a part of New Testament theology, you are going to have that attitude right there. People are going to start feeling ashamed. They're going to start feeling better. They're going to start feeling smug or smirk or whatever, because that is what the law does. The law brings about these feelings of piousness or of unworthiness or of whatever else. And so we have to be very careful to not do that. Part of the sermon this weekend will be on tithing because it's mentioned in there, like it was in the past couple sermons. And then finally, when we get to uh, chapter 14, we'll be done with all of the tithing sermons, every precept that you could possibly think of until Deuteronomy 26, 12. It's mentioned once again, just a verse. We'll be done with that and we won't have to worry about it all the way until Amos 4, verse 4. Oh, so I, I, it's so good to have this behind us, but it is something that just drives me up a wall when churches start preaching tithing. Why are you doing that? You show me anywhere in the New Covenant where that is even mentioned, even hinted at. I, it just, it, you know, grace, 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 but don't forget to tithe. Okay, here we go. Uh, Paul's warning uh, then has been uh, to put away any works of the flesh and to trust in the work of Christ. In doing so, they would not become conceited, like that guy that wrote that thing. The Greek word gives exactly this idea. It speaks of empty glory, self-deluded conceit, which is motivated by delusions of grandeur and boasting in what there is absolutely nothing to boast about. When one is under grace and knows it, then there is no reason at all to act in this way. Because if you were saved by grace, then what do you have to boast for? other than in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But there's nothing you can boast in, in Jesus Christ of your own merit. 
it completely excludes it. And that's why we do not want to reintroduce any precept from the Old Testament, I don't care, or Old Covenant. I don't care how pious it sounds at the beginning or how helpful it sounds. It will always devolve into people pointing their finger at other people. Always. Not if, not maybe, but yes, always. It's going to happen. Okay? So, um, the boasting one would exhibit would be in the one who bestowed the grace, not in self. And that's in Galatians 6, verse 14, where it says this. I think I might have just quoted it. Where is it? Um, yes. Um, here, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What else can you boast about? Literally, what else can you boast about? Uh, I was getting razzed before class today by oh, three or 10 or 12 of the people in the class about not wearing shoes. And, uh, uh, you know, to me, it's just one of those things. I don't like shoes. I never have. I grew up on the beach, and so I don't wear shoes. But um, I'm sure that drives my wife crazy being from Japan. But um, she's very nice to never say anything about it. But I walk around, and you know I pick up the garbage at 7-Eleven every morning and at the mall, and I'm, I just do. And I'm walking around there with my old dirty shirt, and I'm not going to wear a tuxedo to pick up cigarette butts. And so, you know, people will often go into 7-Eleven, and they'll say, you know, can we buy some food for that guy out there? Or They do it all the time, you know, or they'll leave some money on the counter. This is for the guy out there. And they always say, you mean the preacher? And it always floors them because why worry about having a show in this world when Christ is the one that redeemed us? He's the one that, it doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It does, and I'm not talking about in the world standards. I'm talking about in Christianity. Just everybody is on the same level and we don't have anything to boast about. So why worry about it? And that's why I don't worry if somebody looks down at me because I don't have shoes. It doesn't make any difference at all to me. I know who Jesus is, and I know who I am in relation to Jesus, and that is all that matters. Okay, um, the words provoking one another are given next because one who is boastful about himself will naturally provoke those around him, as Jim said when I asked him the question about tithing. In their supposed superiority, they will be haughty and arrogant and look down on those around them. On the contrary, when one understands the grace which has been bestowed upon him, then they should naturally look at others on an equal footing. Christians all belong to the same family, and they will all share in the same blessing because of their adoption by God. And so, what is there to boast in? And with nothing to boast in, there will be no reason to provoke those around them. Likewise, Paul says that they should not be envying one another. It would make no sense for someone to envy someone else who has received exactly exactly, exactly the same blessing as they did. Grace is unmerited favor. To envy someone else's grace is illogical. Okay, so we're sitting here, and we've all had a drought for the past six months, okay? And it's really dry. Sarah, so you know we have sand. We don't have clay soil, and so it doesn't hold in any moisture. If it doesn't rain for 15 minutes in Florida, the water goes right through, and it's dry again because it's all sand. Okay, so... It is dry, and all of a sudden we hear a thunderstorm, and the thunderstorm comes, and it puts down rain on a portion of the people, right? And on the, I, I remember when I was in sixth grade, it rained at school, and it was raining, and it kept doing this for about three or four minutes. And finally, I said, teacher, can we go outside? And she said, okay. There was no thunder or lightning. It was just raining. And we all stood like this, and it was raining on this side of our body, and it wasn't raining on this side of our body. And it was like that. It was, you know, the mom knows this. So we were all out there having fun in the rain. 
Okay, because it just stayed there. Now, can anybody boast that lives in this house where it got rain, in this house where it didn't get rain, that they got rain and they didn't? They could, but it doesn't do any good because they're not the ones that gave the rain, right? God gave the rain. It's all grace. And so when the rain comes, all we can do is say, thank you, Lord. And if both houses get rain, I got more rain than you did. No, you didn't. I got more rain than you did. What's the point? God is the one who gave the rain. And that's the point he's making right here. Okay. I stood out there and half of me got wet and half of me stayed dry. And one side of me couldn't argue over the other. It's just the way that it was. All right. Um, so where are we? Um, uh, yeah, we can't look down on each other. We all belong to the same family. Likewise, Paul says that they should not be envying one another. Oh, I read that too. It would make no sense for someone to envy someone else who had received exactly the same blessing as they did. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay. Many scholars look at Paul's words of this verse in a merely societal context attributing it to wealth, position, status, or possessions. Because even within a church, you got people that, you know, we have a doctor, or we've got an electrician, and we've got a nurse, and we've got all these different things. And so they could be saying, well, that's a societal thing, all right? We've got all these different levels within society. It is true that we shouldn't either boast in these things or be envious of others who have these things. However, Paul's words here must be kept in their context. He has been speaking of deeds of the flesh contrasting fruit of the spirit. Therefore, his words are preeminently referring to spiritual matters and life in Christ. Okay? So, what I mean by that is we could say spiritual matters. I am sitting here and I am preaching. Okay? And you're sitting there listening to me. Whether I'm doing a good job or not, you're being very polite. Okay. So, we have that going on. And you could say, well, and we know people will come from out of state and they'll uh, join us and they'll come in and, you know, it's like, oh, we've been watching you forever and, and they'll say nice things about me, which I wish they wouldn't say. And by the end of the church service, they've met almost everybody in here and they realize everybody is just like Charlie. We're just a group that loves each other and we love the word, okay? So we're all on the same equal footing. Just because I'm sitting there doesn't mean that I could be sitting there if there weren't people here. And I couldn't be doing this if Sergio wasn't over there making sure that it was online for the people online. Because if we weren't online, this church probably wouldn't be here, okay? I'd have a full part-time job, and I may be preaching on Sunday, and that would be it. I couldn't afford to do anything else. So every single thing that happens within this church to make it work, the guy up in New Jersey that does the website, I don't do that. He does that for me, okay? All of these things work together, and I can't say, well, I've got a better job than you do because, you know... I'm preaching and you're just in the lowly pew when in fact I couldn't be open without you or we couldn't be open without you. So everything has to be kept in the context. We all have received what we have from the Lord and we can strive to, you know, increase what we do for the Lord. But at the same time, this church would not be a church without every single person in it doing what it's doing. Okay, and that's what Paul, that's the context of it. Yes, there are different levels of society in here. That's not really what Paul's speaking of. He's speaking about spiritual matters. I have the same grace that you have. We all are on the same level. Each one of us has an appointment to do, and none of it could get done without every person working together. Okay, so life application. Let us never assume that the fruit of the Spirit that we possess somehow makes us better than those around us. And unfortunately, this is very common in Christianity. Further, let us never be envious of someone who has a very strong and vital ministry or ability within the body. Each of us was saved by grace, 
And each of us has gifts of the Spirit which have been given according to the wisdom of God. The best thing we can do is to cultivate those gifts which have been given and do so to his glory. And if we can do that, then we will be in the sweet spot, okay? We just need to remember that, not to elevate people because in the, in the end, we all get up in the morning and we all have two legs and we all put on pants in the exact same way. Nobody puts them on at the same time. We have to put one leg in and then the other, okay? Oh, you have. He's perfected it. Okay, well then, we're all going to, we're going to let you sit at the honored position for the rest of the, uh, okay, yeah. You know, I, I have tried that in the past, putting on jeans, you jump and you get in, and you always, you, shorts are better. Shorts are better, but you try it with jeans and you're always going to end up on, I'm telling you, it is not, an, you know, I'm sure there are acrobatics, and especially those Chinese acrobatic people, I'm sure they could do it, but there is no jumping in the jeans for Charlie Garrett. It doesn't work. Okay. Go to Crane for his job. Yeah. But his wife asked me to go get him up. Okay. He thought, held out his pants and jumped in them. And I said, I've never seen it. Oh Tried my. to see it again. So he did it a second time for me. But wow. He jumped right into his pants. All right. Well, that ain't me. I can tell you. I've tried and it doesn't work. Can I give you a, a, a pat on the back? We hear you say, Lord, that means Jehovah. And Lord, that means Elohim. Right. Well, not Elohim. God means Elohim. God is Elohim. Lord, Lord is either Adonai, which is the Creator. Yes. Okay. Yes. Creator, and then the other is the Covenant God. Right. The Covenant God or the Creator God. I I never saw that before. You brought that out. I'm reading your Genesis. Oh, oh, oh! Gotcha, gotcha. That's he's reading the Genesis sermons right now, and so. uh, he wasn't. Yeah, he doesn't like watching the videos. He'd rather read them. So sure. his Sunday, believe it or not, his Sunday, he goes to church on uh, Sunday morning. And he said, when I was young, we went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. And he says, well, this is my Sunday afternoon church is reading what I do on Sunday here. But in the during the week, he's been reading the old Genesis sermons because he never saw any of those. So anyway, yes, there you go. Elohim, creator, and then, yeah, yeah. Lord, the covenant. That's yeah. exactly right. Good job. Okay, so... Um, uh, we're now in the last chapter of the book of Galatians. I can't believe it. 6-1. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Before I even get into this one, it just came to mind, and maybe I mentioned it in the commentary, probably not. I remember hearing. I'll read mine first because it it says the same thing. It's just written differently. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Okay, we can say, well, I'm going to help this guy out who's caught in this sin, and I'm I'm, going to take care of the problem, and it's not going to affect me. And I remember hearing of a ministry, and you talk about taking chances. This is taking chances. A ministry that would minister to prostitutes. And what they would do is they would pay the hour for a prostitute. And then they would evangelize her. Okay? And they, it was always in a hotel room because you're, you know, it, that's where they worked out of. Okay? And I thought, no. no. That does not seem like a smart thing. I mean, it, well, let me read it again. It's, yours reads better. Read it nice and loud. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be 
Temptation, man, that's, I'm telling you, I don't care what it is. If you're going to, uh, Billy Graham said something years ago, and I've always remembered that, is he said, if I have to meet somebody that has asked for uh, counseling, and it's a female, it is always going to be in public. Always. Or We're going to meet at a restaurant or what? Or somebody else. Well, you, if it's private, you, you know, there are some things that I, I, I can't tell he to go. Okay, some people just don't want their, their things relayed. And if that's the case, then you have to be one-on-one. -on -one then you're going to go where it's public. And he said that, and I, I thought, that's smart, and I was probably this big when I heard it, you know? Anyway, um, okay, Paul's letter to the Galatians now reaches its final chapter with the words of admonition, which are immensely valuable to pay heed to. He began with the word brethren in order to set the tone. He is speaking to his beloved brethren in Galatia. He is acknowledging that they're saved. He's acknowledging that they have fault and that they need to get that corrected. He is not questioning their salvation he is not in any way, shape, or form saying you can lose your salvation. He hasn't done it in this epistle. He's not going to do it in any of his epistles. But they can lose their joy, and they certainly can have a congregation full of dysfunction. Okay, um, he says that in order to set the tone. But his words include even us today who are a part of the same body. The heartfelt nature of the address is intended to elicit continued harmony. As he is speaking to fellow Christians... The words imply that the action they are to take also involves fellow Christians. It is in this context that he says, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. The idea of being overtaken does not include someone who is living in sin or prone to returning to some old sin. In such a case, that person is to be properly disciplined, rebuked, or even excommunicated. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 5. For such a one, the circumstance would dictate the punishment. Rather, this is speaking of another brother who simply falls into some sort of temptation and fails to resist it. At such a time, Paul tells them that his words, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The one who is spiritual is speaking of the one who is guided by the Spirit of God. His conduct is explained in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. We'll read that again. 5:16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And he's saying... This is what he's talking about now. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. This is the brother that has fallen or that he's talking about now. How does he say um, uh, he's overtaken in some trespass? And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so... And it defined, is defined by the fruits mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 through 25, which we've been reading. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, so with that set, he goes on. One of those fruits is actually referred to by Paul now, gentleness. As the individual is guided by the Spirit, he should possess that fruit in some measure. Paul asks him, and thus us, to depend on this trait when dealing with such a brother. There's an especially important reason for this, too. We should each carefully consider ourselves lest we also become tempted. In other words, none of us are above falling into temptation. If we harshly treat a brother who has become over who has been overcome by sin, 
when our time inevitably comes, and it will, there will be at least two repercussions that we will face for that harsh treatment. Okay, this guy falls into some type of temptation. He's overtaken by it. And I beat him up over it. Well, look at what you've done. You're a crummy Christian. And what are you doing? You need to get your act together and on and on. One, we will be disgraced because of our own haughty attitude. Our arrogance will be on more prominent display. And two, we may receive the same treatment from our fallen brother because of the sad precedent we set. He turns around and says, well, you're just as bad as I am. And you're such a, you know, I mean, this is what happens. But if you look at it and you say, you know, I know that this is something that you were overtaken in and you weren't purposely doing it and we need to talk about it and get you through it. That's always the better way than doing what Paul is saying on the other hand. You can just beat somebody up over it and all you've done is you've put up a wall. And uh, anyway, Paul always thinking ahead wants to preempt the pain and suffering that comes from unclear reasoning concerning our state as Christians. And with a life application, we if we harshly treat a brother who has fallen, we may very well ruin a friendship for no good reason. How much better it is to empathize with others' failings and do our best to maintain sound and friendly relations with those around us who have called on Christ. 6-2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, that's... This one says bear another one's burdens instead of carry. Wow, the sermon typing this week, it was, uh, let me see if I can find it really quickly, just because it's on my mind. And if we get raptured, you'll know it because it'll be in, uh, you'll you'll get it in glory. But it was just a great verse. Let me see if I can find it. If I can, yeah, just, you know, there's just such treasure in the word. Um, let's see if I can find it. 15, and I was doing, uh, oh yeah, I remember it was, um, hang on. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, has sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. Nobody translates it this way, but the word it says in the Hebrew, necklacing him, you shall necklace him. In other words, it's like taking everything and just putting so much blessing on him from your flock and from your herd and everything. It's like a necklace around him, and he's actually bearing it like a burden. That's how generous you're supposed to be. And I thought, why doesn't anybody translate it like that? It's so beautiful, you know? Anyway, there you go. I didn't mean to get caught up in that, but like I said, I typed the sermon. It's not going to be out for another 10 or 12 weeks, and so we may, may never get to it. And if not, then you'll have heard something. I just thought that was so beautiful. Necklacing him, you shall necklace him. Anyway, here we go. Um, in this verse, the stress is on the words one another's. Paul is highlighting the mutual relationship which was noted in the previous verse. When a brother falls, we should be there to gently restore him, just as he will most probably have to gently restore us when we fall into temptation and fail. When we are weak, we are to be strong. Or I'm sorry, when they are weak, we are to be strong. When we fall, they are to be there to restore us to a right walk. Paul noted this in Romans 15 as well. Romans 15. And let's see here. Where is that? Okay. Oh, yeah. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. There you go. Uh, this is what we are called to do because Christ himself first bore our burdens. That's all the way back from Isaiah 53. Right? Further, as our high priest, 
he continues to bear our failings before the Father, making intercession for us. It is in our acting in this manner of bearing one another's burdens that Paul says we will so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is superior to the law of Moses in this regard. Actually, it's superior in all regards. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'll know that. The law of Moses was of stern discipline. The law of Christ is that of grace and mercy. The display of these attributes results in love for one another. And this is exactly what Christ commanded us to observe from John chapter 13. Hang on one sec here. John. Uh, yeah, that, it's that passage. He did that in John 13. And then in John, oh, that's a long chapter there. John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's why nobody in the world knows that we're disciples of Christ. It's because we always fail at that, right? Nobody laughed, but it's true, even though... Okay, let's see here. Life application. It is incumbent on us to restore those around us who demonstrate failings in their Christian walk. and are bearing their burdens, the law of Christ finds its fulfillment in such dealings with one another. Yes? This was at least 30 years ago. Elmer Towns, anyway, he was at uh, Thomas Road's big gathering in Lynchburg, and he noticed a guy sitting back in the audience who used to be the chaplain of Bourbon Street. He did a wonderful job, and the, the, all the bar owners you know, felt that he was doing a job. So they hired this beautiful woman and he succumbed to her. Oh, no. And Elmer said, this was like four years later, and he saw him back there, and he says, do I see, and I can't get the guy's name now. John Doe. And he says, do I see you back there? Why don't you come up and give the prayer for our offering? That's what he was doing. He was lifting up this brother. Right. He was prayed. restoring him. Yes. Absolutely. But it recognized him among all these people that was from wow. all over the country there that I, you kept saying that, and I kept thinking, That's, I've got to have that guy's name, but I, I can't get it right now. Oh, my goodness gracious. But well, some, somebody online knows who that chaplain of Bourbon Street chaplain is. Of Bur well, if anybody knows the chaplain of Bourbon Street, let me know, and we'll, I'll get Bur he'll get some sleep tonight. Because um, if they know, they always email me right away, right yeah. right during the class. All right, 6-3, and we got just enough time to get this done. 6-3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. Yeah, and that's a lot of us. Okay, me too. Um, this verse bears directly on the previous verse, which said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The person who is unwilling to help a brother who has slipped to get back on the proper path is just as human as well. <clears throat> in his looking down on the fallen brother in contempt or accusation, he is demonstrating that he thinks himself to be something. In essence, how could you allow this deplorable sin into your life? I would never, just like you're saying about that guy there. Such a person acting in his haughty and arrogant manner is no better than the one he is accusing. He thinks the fallen brother is nothing, but this just proves that he is nothing also, as Paul says. We as humans tend to put a high value on ourselves, but in this we are only deceived. We all get up and put, there it is, we all get up and put our pants on one leg at a time, except uh, the guy that Burke knew. We're all growing older. We will all die. 
We are not special or unique out of all of the human race, and so we need to recognize it. When our fall does come, we will inevitably get our comeuppance for the arrogance we display towards others. For this reason, let us not think too highly of ourselves, but rather let us empathize with those who fall into various sorts of sin, leading them lovingly back to restoration. Okay, life application, and we'll be done because I know we can't get the next one. Humility in the present will generally be rewarded with kindness in the future. And uh, that's that for today. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll, I'm sorry, I know we're cutting off about five and a half minutes from the class, but I know the next verse is going to take longer than that. So we took this away, and we are on 6-2 next week. No, what what verse are we on next week? Four. Four. Where, oh, okay, let me, I want to circle that right now before I do anything else, because I'll get in here and I will forget. Okay, here we go. All right, 6-4, and I got all the prayer people I mentioned earlier. Okay, we got that, and... Uh, Bob Harrington, chaplain of Bourbon Street. There you go. Thank you, Jody. All right, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word and uh, uh, to lift up the people that are having difficulties. Also to praise you for the goodness you've shown to Lothar so far. And also for uh, Tom back here, who's had uh, his own continuing struggle for quite a few years, and yet the Lord keeps uh, sustaining him. And we're grateful for every day that we're with him as well. And uh, Lord, we all know that it will be a lot better for each and every one of us to just be with you. But until that day comes, just give us the ability to continue on and to tell others about you and to share in your goodness and to hold fast to you because you are all that's worth holding fast to. And we know that when we let go and we go astray, that you are still holding on to us because you are great, you are glorious, and you are Jesus. Thank you so much for what you've done for us, Lord God. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me back this up here. Oh.